So the reason that's important is that it, if it takes away this narrative that you're doomed if we're only talking about race. Perhaps there are factors outside of race that really are far more determinative of your long-term success. So why do people um, share this narrative? I mean, they have an agenda. Welcome to Acton Line, a product of the Acton Institute for the Study of Religion and Liberty. I'm Gabriel Jaja, producer. This is a special edition of Acton Line, featuring Ian Rowe, senior fellow at the American Enterprise Institute, speaking on his new book, Agency. Last week, Rowe visited the Acton Institute for a discussion in front of a live audience with Eric Cohn, Acton's Director of Marketing and Communications. Rose speaks on how we can uplift every young person as they make the passage into adulthood, because every child in America deserves to know that a path to a successful life exists and that they have the power to follow it. You can find additional resources in the show notes of this episode, as well as previous episodes on our website at acton.org podcast. If you like this program, you can help us reach even more listeners by sharing it with a friend and leaving us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. We welcome your comments as well. Act in Line is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and Spotify. It's my pleasure now to introduce uh, Ian Rowe, who is the founder of Vertex Partnership Academies and a senior fellow at the American Enterprise Institute. In addition to serving 10 years as CEO of Public Prep, he held leadership positions at Teach for America, the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, the White House, and MTV, where he earned two public service Emmys. Rowe earned an MBA from Harvard Business School, a Bachelor of Science degree from Cornell University's College of Engineering, and his high school diploma from Brooklyn Tech as part of a K-12 NYC public education. Ian, thanks so much for joining us today. Thank you, Eric. Uh, Good morning, everyone. I'm, I'm looking forward to a wonderful discussion. I have a, just a few uh, opening remarks. I'm, I'm glad we were able to do this. Uh, the reason I'm in town is that I was asked to speak uh, at Hope College and Calvin, uh, and uh, so we're doing on two consecutive nights. And uh, the theme of the discussion uh, is freedom or equity. Uh, and a number of the students were arguing, you can't have freedom without equity. And I said, no, 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 these two, these two thoughts are at cross purposes because equity is currently defined means equality of outcomes, which is a forced, uh, more neo-Marxist view of the world, uh, and equality of opportunity is the best way to ensure that each person has freedom. So we had a nice, uh, rich discussion last night, and we're doing it again tonight at uh, Hope College. So I'm glad to be here. Um, uh, as you mentioned, I am a senior fellow at the American Enterprise Institute. Uh, uh, in addition to that, for the last 10 years, I was CEO of Public Prep, which is a network of uh, all girls and all boys uh, public charter schools, uh, elementary and middle schools. Um, we had about 2,000 students in our schools, uh, almost all low-income students, almost all black and Hispanic uh, students, and you know, parents who just wanted their 
kids to have a shot at the American dream. Uh, each year we had our lottery where you, know, you just have random selection, so a few more hundred kids come in, but we had nearly 5,000 kids on our wait list. So the, the uh, lottery day is an amazing day because you get to call these couple hundred families to say you got the golden ticket in, but then we have to send a note to 5,000 families to say the best we can do is put your son or daughter on this excruciatingly long uh, wait list. And this is in a district, by the way, District 8 in the South Bronx, where only 2% of kids who in 2015 started ninth grade in high school, four years later, only 2% graduated from high school ready for college, meaning that they started ninth grade and either dropped out along the way or they actually did earn their high school diploma but still could not do math nor reading without remediation. And it's these kinds of conditions that make it very difficult for any child because unfortunately these, these statistics apply in parts of Chicago, the Bronx, Buffalo, Rochester, Los Angeles, many, Appalachia, you know, many parts of the country. Uh, and so these are the kinds of conditions that I very much try to highlight and fight against and show that there is an empowering alternative. So for that reason, I'm, I, I ended my tenure at public prep running schools through eighth grade, and now uh, I'm launching a new network of character-based uh, international baccalaureate high schools uh, in the South Bronx uh, this August. Because, again, I think it's very important that it's, it's important that we talk about concepts like free enterprise and entrepreneurship and education, upward mobility, faith. Um, we also have to have institutions that embody those principles. And so as much as I, uh, I'm a, a think tanker uh, at AEI, I'm also a practitioner in trying to implement the principles that we often talk about with the very people that we're often talking about and to see what happens when you bring ideas into reality. Um, because oftentimes what may look good in academia or a think tank doesn't play out on 149th Street and 3rd Avenue. Um, so I think I spend a lot of time thinking about um, what young people are facing in our country today. And I've come to this belief that there are these two uh, dominant meta-narratives that are impeding the ability of young people to really see their ability to control their own destiny. And I call these meta-narratives the first one I call blame the system, and the other I call blame the victim. In the blame the system narrative, that the folks who are advocates of that paint America as this permanently oppressive nation, that based on your skin color, your gender, your gender identity, some immutable characteristic, you're either an oppressor or you're oppressed. You're either marginalized or you're a marginalizer. In this view of the world, the systems that you're stuck in are so powerful. You know, capitalism itself is evil. Capitalism is immoral. Uh, these systems are so rigged against you that you are essentially powerless to have any of your own independent movement unless there's massive government intervention to come save the day. So that's what I call blame the system. But on the other side, 
I call blame the victim, which is this different view of America, which is America's incredible. It's, it's, uh, it's the greatest country in the world. It's, it's, it's perfect in, I'm a little extreme, but there's lots of opportunity here. And if you're not successful, it's your fault. Somehow, it's some pathology that you have that has, you have not been able to take advantage of these opportunities. You should have pulled yourself up by your own bootstraps. That's what I call blame the victim. And both of these narratives, I think, are debilitating. They're both half-truths that add up to a lie, in a sense. And they rob young people of agency, the sense that I can control my own destiny. And I have, I am, uh, I've just written a new book called Agency, where I define agency as the force of your free will guided by moral discernment. The force of your free will guided by moral discernment. So agency is, is a vector. It's, it's like velocity. So velocity is not just speed. It's speed and direction. Right? So the question is, if, if all of us have our own free will, what provides that framework where you can achieve moral discernment. And this is where I've created a new framework that I think young people need to help them know that they can overcome institutional barriers that the blame the system people constantly advocate are paralyzing. Simultaneously, I think young people need a framework to know that there are institutions that can support them that the blame the victim people constantly ignore. They ignore the importance of these supports. And so I call this new framework free. Family, religion, education, and entrepreneurship. These are the four pillars, which I call free, which if young people embrace, I think our freedoms can more likely be preserved. So the first free is family. It's not about the family that you're from, it's about the family you form. And so when young people think about the series of decisions, some of you may have heard about this term called the success sequence, where if you finish just your high school degree, you get a full-time job of any kind, just so you learn the dignity and discipline of work, and then if you have children, marriage first, that series of decisions results in 97% of the time avoiding poverty. That's critical information young people need to know as they embark upon their own passage into young adulthood. The second letter in free is R for religion, and this is all about the importance of a personal faith commitment. We're in a society right now where religiosity is in decline, or Religia, the, this, or many young people are adopting a different kind of faith commitment, which is this kind of anti-racism, equity. There, you can be excommunicated if you don't believe in the certain tenets of critical race theory and others. And I want to stimulate a reawakening of a true faith commitment, given all the incredible data of the better outcomes. In fact, just yesterday, the New York Times had an article about a new book called uh, God, Grades, and Graduation that talks about the importance of faith in improving academic outcomes for kids. The third letter, E, education, that's all about school choice and ensuring that every child has the power 
to choose a great school for their child. So those 5,000 kids in the South Bronx that are on a wait list, right now in New York City, there's a cap on charter schools. So you could not start a brand new school if you wanted to help those 5,000 kids have a better option. That's nonsense, it's un-American. Uh, and then the last E is about entrepreneurship. So if you've got the strength of family, strong religion, faith commitment, strong education, how do you deploy that? And that's where I think entrepreneurship is so important. It's work and this idea that you are a problem solver. You understand how to build wealth. In the new high school that we're launching, every ninth grade student through a partnership with the Charles Schwab Company uh, is going to have a stock portfolio of 10 S&P 500 stocks. If, if you're familiar with um, fractional shares of stock, for $5 you can own a piece of Apple or Walmart or Google. So all of our kids will have, that, have a portfolio. And every quarter we'll say, how is it that you know, your earnings are up or why are you getting dividends and I'm not? And so it, it's, it starts to instill this idea that if you have an iPhone, you're not just a consumer, you can be an owner. And to all these ways we're looking at how to instill this idea of being an entrepreneur, being an owner, being in control of your own destiny. And so that's the framework that I put forth, uh, and we can talk about how we operationalize it um, in my book, uh, Agency. But it's just this idea that we have to break through these paralyzing narratives that right now young people are constantly hearing about all of the things that they can't do and replace it with, in my view, something that is more empowering, that revitalizes these four pillars and institutions that's so important to young people's development. So the two problemat uh, problematic narratives that you outlined, blame the system, blame the victim, uh, what's interesting to me there is both of them seem like, the, in a sense, a blame shift, right? You, if you're blaming the system, there's no name to the system. There's oh, yeah. no individual there. It is these nefarious forces. We see this all throughout history of, of people in uh, difficult circumstances, you know, or, or even when you can name it, like, you know, if only the czar knew. Um, <laughs> and with blaming the victim, um, in that case, if you're a part of those communities that can be assisting people, you're kind of saying, well, no, it's their fault. And you're shifting off of your own responsibility to and be engaged in your community. Where are these where are these narratives coming from? Mm. Um, and what is the attraction to, uh, beyond, I guess, the obvious, of wanting to shift blame off of yourself? Because it's the speaker in both of those cases that's shifting blame somewhere yep. else. What's the attraction there? Well, what's the attraction is it's, these are lazy explanations, right? It's very easy just to say, oh, you know, America is racist. Therefore, that's the explanation for why kids are not succeeding. And, you know, probably the best um, example of the blame the system ideology is the New York Times uh, 1619 project. If you're familiar with that, three years ago, the New York Times dedicated a magazine issue where they put forth a very different view of America, where they said America wasn't even founded in 1776. It was founded in, in 1619. That the country was founded as a slaveocracy, not a democracy that the founding principles themselves were, quote, false when they were written, end quote. And that virtually every racial disparity or every aspect of America that exists today is tied back to the history of slavery in this country. In fact, Nicole Hannah-Jones, who's the primary author and lead of the New York Times 1619 Project, 
she wrote, in addition to this, she wrote an 8,000-word essay called uh, What We Are Owed uh, to explain that black people in this country are so screwed, the, the only answer is that the government has to pass a $13 trillion reparations program. But in that essay, she wrote, there is nothing you can do if you're a black person. It doesn't matter if you get educated, doesn't matter if you get married, doesn't matter if you buy a home, doesn't matter if you save. Quote, none of those things can overcome 400 years of racialized plundering, end quote. So like imagine if you were a 12-year-old black kid in school hearing that, right? That, that, that's the kind of message that is so disempowering because it's just saying the entire history of the country, all of these systems are against you. And yet, when you look at uh, an, another example is something called the racial wealth gap. I'll, I'll use a lot of different examples. Many of them are related to race, but I could apply this in lots of different contexts. But the 2019 survey of consumer finances, uh, if you look at that just based on race, the median wealth of the average white family is about $160,000 more than the median wealth of the average black family, just based on race. And so people look at that and say, that is proof of America's systemic historical oppression and present-day oppression. Um, and yet, if you look at that same survey and just take into account two other factors, family structure and education, the median wealth of a married, college-educated black family is $220,000, about $160,000 more than the median wealth of the average white single-parent family. So the reason that's important is that it, if it takes away this narrative that you're doomed if we're only talking about race. Perhaps there are factors outside of race that really are far more determinative of your long-term success. So why do people um, share this narrative? I mean, they have an agenda. I mean, Nicole Hannah-Jones, the one who said, doesn't matter if you save, get married, buy a home, guess what? She's done all of those things in her own life and she's quite successful. And there are lots of black and other Americans who've done those things are quite successful. But that's not the narrative that they want to push because that narrative of empowerment based on family, faith, hard work, free enterprise, that narrative doesn't go along with you've got to have a $13 trillion reparations program, right? And um, so my, my hope is that instead of, uh, the cancel culture that we have today, which is that there are a lot of bad ideas out there that are being shouted down or canceled, you know, let's fight bad ideas with better ideas. We have to come up with our own empowering alternative. That's why I've created the free framework, because we have to, you know, young people don't, you know, they're just being immersed in this blame the, you know, blame the victim, uh, blame the system ideology. On the blame the victim side, why do people push that? You know, what's interesting is I don't, uh, I think people are often accused of blaming the victim when they, when they talk about things like agency or personal responsibility. I think part of the challenge there is that many folks who are often advocating that, for, because I do, I obviously talk about agency, but it's important to talk about the necessity of the character-forming institutions that help you become an independent agent. 
strong families, strong faith-based organizations, choice in schools. So there are institutions that we have to make sure are doing their work to help each of us become the independent agent in our own lives. Your point about Nicole Hannah-Jones reminded me of um, your AEI colleague, Charles Murray, making the point in Coming Apart that uh, the problem with uh, many people in elite positions like Nicole Hannah-Jones is, they don't is not preach what, what they, they practice. practice. It's not that they believe things that they don't do themselves. They live the way that they should and should model for other people to live. But there's, and I think for different reasons. You talked about her having a particular agenda, and I think that's probably pretty clearly true. Um, for other people, they're afraid of being judgmental and saying, you know, in laying out that success sequence and saying, yes, this is a better way to live one's life. Uh, and that, I think, could also feed into the, yep. the fear in some cases of people blaming the victim, that they don't want to do that. And as a result, they're afraid to say, well, this really is a better way to model one's life. There is this, there's this weird phenomena of guilt and how it plays out. Um, and you know, Shelby Steele often writes about white guilt, which is kind of the, the phenomena of just people wanting to bend over backward to show that I'm not racist and you'll do all sorts of virtue signaling, you'll put up a Black Lives Matter sign in your yard. See, that's not me, it's the other guy. Um, but there's also a phenomenon of what I call black guilt, where you have middle and upper class blacks who are who, millions of uh, black people in this country who are doing just fine, who've, again, followed strong families, faith commitment. I mean, there was a study done a few years ago, Black Men Making It in America, which is all about the black, middle, and upper class and what are the characteristics that define this group of people? Typically, married, full-time work, faith commitment, um, sometimes military. But, you know, the, it, it's not surprising. But what's interesting about this group, what I call black guilt, you know, each time there's a story about George Floyd, you know, which was this horrific event, you know, every black person becomes George Floyd. And in a sense, you almost become you feel guilty that you're successful. So you don't want to, you know, it's a weird thing that you, because I find many, quote unquote, elite black people, more progressive, will be as rabid to talk about the racial oppression in the country when they're living great. You know, and, it, 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 and, and I don't, don't want to be completely dismissive. It is, it, both things can be true, that you can be successful in your own life and still say that there are conditions that should be improved for people who have not yet, yet arrived. I believe that's what my life is all about. But you have to acknowledge that this idea that there's a white supremacist lurking on every corner that's just waiting to impede your ability to be successful, your own life challenges that premise. And your, the life of millions of people of all races who have been persecuted in some way have managed to excel in our country. So let's try to figure out what those underlying behaviors are and the institutions that supported them. And let's have that conversation as opposed to just saying it's, you know, the country itself is just inherently flawed. I'm quite taken with your definition of agency, the force of one's free will guided by moral discernment. So our mission here at the Acton Institute is to promote a free and virtuous society characterized by individual liberty and sustained by religious principles. Um, I think the, the overlap there in the Venn diagram between those two statements is, is, it's not quite a circle, but it's, it's a lot there. Um, 
How does your definition here differ from the conventional understanding of agency, and why do you think that this definition is a more complete definition of agency? Yeah, it's a good question, because I thought about this a lot. Um, because there, in, in education, there, there are uh, two big concepts called grit, if you're familiar with grit and growth mindset. Um, and you know these concepts are very much about the kind of can-do, uh, stick-to-itiveness, um, true Americana, resilient. Um, and those, you know, those um, descriptors are helpful, but you can have grit towards a pretty bad outcome, <laughs> right? I mean, Putin, is one could argue, has a lot of grit. The guy is determined to do some pretty horrible, horrible things. So... This idea of grit, growth mindset, or just this idea, again, of free will, because we're, we're all humans. We're all, we all have the ability, to some degree, decide what we want for our own lives. The question is, in which direction is that going to move? So the moral component is fundamental. So it's the force of your free will guided by moral discernment, meaning your own ability to make discerning choices. But the question is... How do you develop the ability to make good, discerning choices? So that has to come from somewhere. And that's where, in my view, these pillars of family, religion, and education are the first three that help young people understand the difference between right and wrong. And my fear right now is that the decline in religiosity, the breakdown of the American family, the lack of school choice in education are fracturing the very institutions that we want to help young people uh, develop this ability for moral discernment. So I think that is the key, key difference. Velocity is not just speed. It's speed and direction. You reminded me of, uh, and I will paraphrase a quote from um, our namesake, Lord Acton, that... uh, Freedom is not the license to choose what you want, but the liberty to choose what you ought. Um, that moral discernment there that is necessary to understand what you ought to choose is important. That gets to one of the, the uh, pillars that you talk about in a religious education and understanding of that moral grounding, the virtue that is necessary to, uh, to live a good life and for us to have a free and a virtuous society. We talk real quick about you know, family, religion, education, entrepreneurship. Um, these are institutions, as your uh, other AEI colleague, Yuval Levin, would talk about. What is the state of those institutions? And what is the work that we need to put into uh, refining those institutions, making them better so that they're performing their jobs? And I, I think one of them that sticks out to me particularly is education at this moment. So much of the last two years... I think has revealed very clearly to people the problems in our education system. I lived in Chicago prior to moving here to Grand Rapids. And I would talk to people about uh, the Chicago public school system on a very regular basis. And I've, believe me, I've been told I'm wrong about public education in Chicago for all kinds of different reasons. But the one reason I was never told was, no one ever said to me, Cone, man, you're just wrong. CPS is a system that's educating kids. People recognized that it wasn't working well, but there was this paralysis about it. And I think I'm optimistic. I'm hopeful. I'm not optimistic. I'm hopeful that something has changed where people are recognizing those problems more clearly now 
and feel empowered to do something about it. But beyond just education, because we have personal experience there, what are the state of these pillars? And what is the responsibility we have for making them better functioning? Yeah. Well, we could have a whole other session just on, on this question. You know, like many, like many um, topics, it's, it's actually a nuanced answer. Family, religion, education, entrepreneurship, one could argue, oh my God, they're totally fractured. Um, you know, uh, we're not doing well as a country. But if you look within certain populations, the strength of the family is strong in highly religious uh, communities, upper income, you know, divorce rates are pretty low, marriage rates still are pretty high. Even when Charles Murray writes about uh, coming apart, he talks about we're, we're much more a marriage divide country today where, so family, religion, choice in schools are strong and entrepreneurship are strong in certain segments of America. It's in the segments of America, primarily low income uh, that you have explosions in non-marital birth rates, and you see the you see the effect of that in communities like again, and where I run my schools, the non-marital birth rate is about eighty-five percent, right? But if you look in Appalachia and other parts, I mean the 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 explosion in non-marital birth rates in the white community, um, it, it's now the highest rate of growth, right? And, and you see the effect of that with deaths of despair, the opioid crisis. So it's what I call an equal opportunity tsunami. So by measure of the stability of families within lower income communities, that's where you're seeing the instability of families, which then has a negative cascade effect, right? So you, you see less religiosity, less education. You know, you'll see less school choice. I mean, if you're a middle or upper class person in America, you generally have school choice, not necessarily by policy, but you have it with the power to move or send your kid to private school or religious school. So that exists. So what I want to do is bring that level of stability that exists for a certain segment of America, probably many of the people that exist in this room, and that's not necessarily privilege. That's just good choices, in my view, of how to lead your life. But how do we bring those same choices and stability to a much larger population of our country across race. So, um, and to your point about education, yes, the last two years have been extraordinary because more parents, I mean, you know, I ran for school board in my own town because I was very dissatisfied with what was happening in Pelham, New York, and I won. And, you know, and I think this revolution is happening. So I think there is a, a glimmer of hope. You saw it in the Glenn Youngkin election in Virginia that parents themselves are, I think, rising up to say, Wait a minute. I mean, the principal in our middle school in, Pe- in Pelham just made an announcement to all the teachers, please no longer refer to the kids as boys and girls because somehow that'll make some kids who are questioning their gender identity uncomfortable. Like, wait, when did, when did that decision occur? So now but we're going to push back on that and say, you know, so these things have been happening sort of underneath the radar, and I do think there's a apparent revolt that is happening that I'm hoping sustains itself as we um, come out of the, you know, come out of COVID. I do uh, want to leave some time to get to questions for the audience here, but I want to I come back real quick to 
blame the system and blame the victim. We talked about those being blame shifting problems yeah. that you're you're pushing the responsibility off on someone else. Um, you know, for someone listening to our conversation today, uh, you could look at the system is such a big problem that you know it robs you of agency, right? You don't know what can you do to fix a right. system. You're only one person. And the blaming the victim, especially if you're considering, in a sense, yourself the victim, you don't, you know, like, well, what can I do to fix my situation? Um, what should people walk away with in terms of what, what's the, the first thing they should do in their own lives um, to help uh, push back against those narratives uh, or to shift that conversation about, what we're focusing on, that we're not focusing on some insurmountable and uh, just behind a cloud of smoke type system or people who are just not capable of helping yeah. themselves. What can people, what can they actionalize in their lives? What yeah. can they do themselves specifically? Wow, this is, this is why I run schools. Fundamentally, each person has to realize two things. One, I am not a victim. That's point number one. Point number two is that I have power in my own life. If you don't have those two fundamental beliefs about your own existence, almost everything else falls by the wayside because you don't have the courage to try. You don't have the motivation to move forward. But this is where it's really important, again, the sort of blame the victim um, advocates say it's really important at this point to say after you realize you're not a victim and that you have power, you actually can't do it alone, right? This is where institutions have to step in. Your own family, faith, education, you know, because a seven-year-old kid can't do anything about, you know, the fact that uh, there are 5,000 kids on the wait list and there are no new schools and you have to go to the school that's been failing your community for generations, right? So that seven-year-old kid can believe, I'm not a victim, I have power, and then they go to a really crappy school. That is where our institutions are failing, right? So we have to recognize that you can't do it alone, which is why I am, again, trying to create this new framework that helps young people in particular. I mean, this framework is for all people, but I'm particularly interested in those 24 and under who are still sort of developing their way in the world. So that's, what, that's, that's, the, that's the thing. It's more of a belief than it is an action. You know, it's this belief that I am, even though Nicole Hannah-Jones and all these other folks are telling me how oppressed I am. I mean, during my campaign, actually, this came up for school board, because there was a whole narrative about how all these kids were marginalized. I said, my son is not marginalized. My daughter is not oppressed. Why are you trying to instill this idea in young people who are just crafting their own sense of possibility? I'm going to ask one more question real quick, and then we'll go to questions from the audience. What personally, if you were listen to not just the narratives you highlighted, but so many of the narratives that exist out there about the state of the country, the state of the world, the state of these institutions, uh, one could become depressed pretty quickly. Yes. What makes you hopeful? Uh, again, this is why I run schools, because um, the inherent um, power of young people is that 
even with all these depressing narratives, you know, kids just still want to be kids and play and dream and, and have aspirations. And it kills me when I see people trying to squash that. And so what, what brings me hope is, is um, you know, each time I win, I mean, I, this may be a depressing example, but so we're launching this new network of character-based international baccalaureate high schools in the heart of the South Bronx. And they'll have a, there'll be a pathway for a traditional college, if that's what you want to do, or there'll be a pathway for gaining an industry credential with labor market value. So if at the end of high school, you want to get a job in computer science, phlebotomy, because we're creating a partnership with the Mayo Clinic, um, you'll be able to do that too. So really exciting, new, uh, innovative model. The unions have just sued us. The unions in New York City have just filed a lawsuit because the governance structure we've created, completely legal, but it's an innovative way to be able to open a, uh, a new school as an extension of an existing charter without going into details. Um, and so here's this thing that could make me depressed, that you know, the, the New York's most powerful teachers union is coming after us. And yet, it, it's a completely baseless case, and so we're going to win. But the level of support that has come to rally to our side is amazing, you know? And it's, it's just reaffirming that, you know, that quiet, silent majority that's out there that doesn't believe this narrative and yet may be terrified to say anything is coming out to say, this is what we need. I've just been too scared to say it, but this is what we need in our country. So that gives me a lot of hope. Um, I, think there's, I think most Americans believe the kinds of things that probably most of the folks in this room believe, that you're given a shot, you're given equal opportunity, you're deserving of individual dig dignity. Nothing can be guaranteed, but this is a country where with the right institutions, family, religion, education, entrepreneurship, you can do great things. And so that gives me a lot of hope. We have about uh, 12 minutes left for questions. So uh, as you raise your hand, if you have a question, um, and since we've uh, only have a limited amount of time, I just want to encourage you to keep your questions as, as short and as tight as possible. Thanks yep. so much for what you said. I really enjoy it. Um, just a question. Um, if a white person said everything that you just said, with a few exceptions, it would seem like self-protection or preserving their own positions or that sort of thing. And um, the general narrative in a lot of situations where there's people of color, this is not what's shared, right? In fact, it might even be booed or a lot of pushback. Um, and so it seems to me that to move this forward, there needs to be more voices of color saying these things. And as you said, a lot of people who are successful are very shy about you know, their own guilt about even sharing that. Is there any movement or any effort being put forth that you know, to gather more of those voices together to yep. make it more prominent rather than just some far off YouTube thing that you'd have to search for? <laughs> wow. Uh, so a couple of things. So. Um, you know, one of the, one of the greatest, uh, I think, victories, particularly progressive sort of cancel culture, one of the greatest victories they've made is that they created an environment where it's become so terrifying to speak the truth that people just self-censor, right? So you're saying if you're a white person, like you would just never say it, and that really hurts the debate because it's like you're giving away your power even before you've had an opportunity. So I encourage you to to not succumb to that pressure and say what you believe. 
because the bark is often much worse than the bite. And I know that that's, you, you might sound like that's a, a risky statement, but by not saying anything or holding your views back or saying, oh, because I'm, because I'm the white guy in the room, I can't say these things, say it. It's the only way. Barry Weiss has this great column. Lack of courage is what got us into this mess. It's going to take courage to get us out. But on your point about more black leaders of color um, saying the kinds of things, yeah. Uh, and in fact, um, back in 1980, Thomas Sowell, if you know the great economist Thomas Sowell, this was back in 1980, was very frustrated that you had seen amazing growth in the black middle class um, that almost just ran into the 1960s uh, war on poverty, where in that ensuing 20 years, all sorts of negative explosions in non-marital birth rates in the black community, more black unemployment. And so he was frustrated and he said, look, rather than fight these bad policy ideas, let me share that there are empowering alternatives. So he held a conference in 1980 uh, at the Fairmont Hotel. It was called the Empowering Alternatives Conference where he got some of the leading uh, researchers, black intellectuals, non-black intellectuals, Milton Friedman, a young Clarence Thomas, and they spent three days talking about more empowering alternatives that could be implemented with the black community and others, again, around faith, family, hard work, free enterprise, all these things. Um, and it was an amazing conference that occurred then, but the dominant narrative took over, and you still you see many of these more progressive policies which have not proven to be successful in really moving people out of uh, poverty in any meaningful way. So myself, Glenn Lowry, uh, Shelby Steele, and Jason Riley are holding a version of this conference in May in Dallas where we're getting some of the leading uh, researchers, practitioners uh, in the country to share that here are empowering alternatives to the reparations ideas that are being put forth by Nicole Hannah-Jones or these ideas about government um, benefits that don't condition distribution on work, for example, which we know has all sorts of perverse effects on creating disincentives to work or not to marry. Anyway, so we're going to be coming out of that conference to some degree with our own version of a contract with America, which says we disagree with the dominant ideas around you know, what policy should be in the black and other communities. And here are our set of ideas, right? You fight bad ideas with better ideas. So I'm hoping that that is something that will change the debate um, to show that this isn't some monolithic community and that it gives something, it gives permission for everyone to talk about empowering alternatives. Um, thank you. You've, it's a sign I don't know. Um, you just listed uh, some of my favorite actors in this whole. Um, They're real human issue. beings. I know, <laughs> I know. I listened to them on YouTube. Um, Sowell once said that why he became, why he got disenchanted with Marxism, and it was just a one-word answer: facts. Yeah. Um, and that changed him, the, in effect, the data, the information. Um, the, uh, and you've quoted facts. And I've read several of Soul's books and, and Steele's and those. The argument does not seem 
to be won by facts. Right. Because the the other alternative, the the other narrative is driven by feelings. So it's like they're talking at one level and you're talking at another level. Yep. Is what you're doing the attempt to head off the narrative of feelings? Because facts, didn't, they don't seem to work. They work for me, but uh, not for those that have such great feelings. Yep. Can, you, can you deal with that? You've dealt yeah. with it in one situation. Are there others uh, to head well, this off? No, you're absolutely right. Look, George Floyd, you know, you know, just think about that, as this one horrific incident that's so infinitesimal in, in, the, in the number of incidents that occur between police uh, on, a, on a day-to-day basis, that singular event becomes the poster child for how every black person is treated in this country and how every police officer, like that narrative spreads. So you're right. I mean, so it's not enough for me to say, well, you know, the, the racial wealth gap, if you take into account family structure and education, then you reverse it, you know, people get lost, right? It's important to say those things because data matters, but that's not how we win. So I am. There's a reason the framework I've created is called free. I'm trying to associate these practices or these institutions of family, religion, education, entrepreneurship with a life of freedom. Like to, so to some degree, I'm, I am trying to, to push the, a different narrative because it isn't just about data. It is about feelings in our country, and I wish, I wish it weren't so. I wish people could look at data from the success sequence and see that 97% avoidance of poverty, done. Okay, Let's, how do we do that? But it's not. The level of opposition I have faced teaching the success sequence in public schools has been massive because you can't teach that because these kids' parents didn't follow the success sequence in their own lives. So you're going to be insulting them. You're going to be patronizing. You can't teach that. And I say, wait a minute. So you think it's better to withhold this information from the very kids who are not getting these models? Yes. So, you know, but we all got to be in it. We all have to be compassionate. Um, you know, it's why I run schools. I'm not just a think tanker. It's very hard to dismiss me. Partly I'm black, yes, but... I also run schools in the heart of the South Bronx. And each time I speak to parents, the parents of our kids, and I talk to them about things like the success sequence, they say, thank God someone is teaching my kids about these topics. I wish that I had been taught about it when I was much younger. How you doing, Ian? Um, I wanted to ask a quick question about kind of the balance of, I think it's a dangerous idea to think that um, Racism and systematic racism is causing all of my issues, but on the other side, not acknowledging racism or systematic racism. So what's the what's the balance between displaying the free model while also acknowledging racism and systematic racism? Yep. So saying that racism is real and has an impact in this country and in society, but at the same time, I still can seek freedom 
in our lives and it won't be able to hold me down. So what's the, what's the difference between yep. or the balance between those two ideas? So this is a very profound question. And you can um, acknowledge the existence of systematic discrimination, right? And I often say that there's structural racism, there's institutional racism, there's systemic racism, but there's also surmountable racism, right? So the question is not that whether or not exists. The question is, is it so debilitating that you have no ability to succeed even in the face of it? And that's where you do have to look at the data. You do have to look at, wow, there's actually a thriving black middle class, or there's immigrants that come to this country that seem to be doing far better. And so what is it? Is it just that they're all lucky, random people? Or are there strategies that people of all races can deploy even in the face of structural racism? So what you're saying is extremely important because it is very easy to say, oh, see that guy? He's just ignoring 400 years of racialized plundering. He's just ignoring the fact that George Floyd was killed by a white cop, right? And the thing is, so part of it is like, how do you meet the narrative? So you have to acknowledge that these things exist, but it's to what degree? Is it that I'm just a helpless person, that I'm just sitting here in the face of this, again, white supremacist that's really the person holding me down? Or there's strategies that I can deploy that are in my control that allow me to be successful. So I think it's a very important question. So it's important to acknowledge, but also make it clear that you don't have to be permanently held back by these barriers. Ian, thank you so much. Yeah. Thank you. As always, thank you for listening. Our team loves putting this podcast together for you. It's encouraging to hear from our listeners. Feedback is incredibly important to us because it lets us know what you'd like to hear more of, including the kinds of topics you're interested in most. If you have comments, feedback, or ideas for a show topic or interesting guest, you can email our team at producer at acton.org. Until next week, for Acton Line, I'm Gabriel Jaja. 